The Heathen History Podcast, live from Williams Library in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. We are so lucky that we have a library that has like a a multimedia studio space. Mm -hmm. Very handy. So I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. And this week we are talking about the romanticism in Britain. As strange as it might seem to put the words Britain and romantic in the same sentence. So previously on Heathen History... We talked about German Romanticism. Right. And that's even stranger. Yeah, it really is. So we talked about how this this era of Romanticism brought this new interest in national history, folk traditions, and common language. Right. And in some ways, it's a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. The Enlightenment has kind of collapsed in the French Revolution and the wars that followed that. But certainly... You know, this is the time when you have, you know, James Watt is perfecting steam engines and the first railroads are starting to get built and you're laying the business of industrial society. Farmers are coming off the land or getting kicked off and flocking to the cities to work in factories. And that creates very large problems as well. You know, if you read anything by Dickens, for example, you know how much you know, poverty and misery there was in uh, some of the cities at the time. Traditional ways of life are going under, you know, harder to have people maintaining the old ways of the country when half the country folk are scrambling for industrial jobs in the city and the other half have uh, immigrated to America. And so you have this reaction that develops to it. Now, the Greek and Roman myths and histories had pretty much been a pretty standard part of school curriculum for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So the romantics are getting interested in ancient religion and mythology. And in Britain, yes, it's a lot of Greek and Roman. And there's a great poem by William Wordsworth from 1802. Can I read it or do Go you ahead. want to? The world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. The sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn So might I, standing on this pleasant lee, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. The idea is that you're in a capitalist, technological society, but it's cut people off from nature. Wordsworth is saying he'd rather be a pagan because at least with that worldview – Nature is alive, and you respond to it. You're not severed from it. That sounds familiar, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very much part of the Romantic era heritage that yeah. certainly persists in paganism and heathenry today. You know, this desire to be connected with nature instead of seeing it as just so much raw material to turn into stuff you can sell. So 
there we've gotten a lot of this Greeks and Romans, but in the 1840s, you see this fashionable resurgence of King Arthur mm-hmm. through in painting, literature, most notably in Alfred Lord Tennyson's Lady of Shallot and Adalus of the King. Right. But you have folklorists earlier than that who start collecting folklore. In fact, the word folklore mm-hmm. wasn't coined, though, till about 1846. Right. But you still have people that are getting interested not just in you know, King Arthur or the Greeks and the Romans, but in national traditions, you know, ancient British customs and ways of doing things. And by about 1870, there's this explosion in folklore studies. People are going out and collecting songs and dances, trying to preserve this heritage before it's lost completely. In fact, if to tie to another episode, Mm -hmm. 1878 would be when the Folklore Society of Britain was founded. Right. Which ties into our Wicca episode. Right. And why Lauren hates Margaret Mary. Yeah, this is where <laughs> early folklorists are trying to reconstruct the ancient religion of the British Isles and, you know, finding evidence for ancient sacrifices and seasonal festivals and, you know, killing the old king so that the new king can be born and so on. A lot of what would eventually get incorporated into Wicca comes out of folklore thinking at this time via Margaret Murray, among many others. So, of course, to go in that, Mm -hmm. you have to get into Norse. Of course. Of course. Norse is a Norse, of course, of course. (laughs) And we'll step back in time from 1870 to 1761 when a Scottish author named James McPherson claims that he has found ballads in the Scots Gaelic language about a legendary warrior named Ossian. I think it's in Gaelic it would be more like Oshin, but it's usually Ossian in English. And he publishes this translation of this epic ballad cycle. And Europe went it was Ocean mania. Mm-hmm. Europe went crazy like it was the Beatles. Yeah, it's it's he's almost forgotten now. But uh, the ballads inspired Herder, who we talked about in the last episode, Klopstock, the German poet that was trying to write in the spirit of the ancient Germanic bards, a lot of uh, the the Celtic revival, the idea that the Celts are, well, Celtic that the Celts are this sort of noble and heroic people of warriors and, you know, drinkers and poets and bards. A lot of the sort of romanticized view of Scottish history dates from about this time. So you have people that are like, you know, this sounds a little too good to be true. Yeah. yeah. So they're accusing McPherson of forging these, actually. But the truth is kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah, he did have access to some... Bits of Scots Gaelic uh, folk poetry that did mention people like Ocean. But yeah, he did a lot of cutting and pasting and reworking to get them to fit into a narrative. And the tradition of like that continues with every single made for TV movie, TV movie based on a real occurrence. Mm-hmm, pretty much. But, you know, he's a more gifted poet than he gets credit for because yeah. he was able to take all this and fashion it into something that would inspire people. That was incredibly popular. To take one example, I'm thinking of uh, Felix Mendelssohn, uh, the composer, actually took a tour of Scotland to see some of the places that are mentioned. 
And uh, there's a piece he wrote called Fingal's Cave about this great sea cave that was the hangout of one of the characters in Oceanic Legend. So this feeds into this early romantic desire. What they talked about was they wanted the sublime, which is basically anything that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. They're looking for things that are going to move you not necessarily in appreciation of beauty. Sometimes it might be fear or revulsion even, but they're looking for this sense of, <sighs> whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they've got Oceon. Could there be more? I don't know. Could there be a Swiss scholar named Paul Henry Mallet? I'm Mallet? Mallet? Mm-hmm. It's not. I wanted to say Mallet, but I knew that okay. one right. Yeah, Paul-Henri Mallet was this French-speaking Swiss guy who was working in the mid-1700s as a professor at the University of Copenhagen. And he learned Danish. He also learned Old Norse. And in 1756, he published Monument de la mythologie et de la poésie des Celtes et particulièrement des anciens Scandinaves. Monuments of the mythology and poetry of the Celts and particularly the ancient Scandinavians because he's not very clear on the difference. So the Scandinavians are the Celts in this guy's mind. Well. Or the Celts are the Scandinavians. To be fair, the the Romans were not particularly clear about who was who. Everybody north of the Rhine was a barbarian and, you know, they didn't always bother to separate out the Celts and the Germans. Kind of like how Americans do with Native Americans. Mm-hmm. We lump them all together instead of the particular distinct tribes that they are. You can't be bothered to tell the difference between, what, a Cherokee and a Quakutal? Yeah, I gotcha. All right. Or, I mean, you know, like the way that Americans tend to lump together, you know, English and and Scots people. Or everyone and, in East Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not really good at – humans in general aren't good at this. Right. So Thomas Percy then came along in 1770 and uh, published a translation of this called Northern Antiquities. Mm -hmm. He also published five pieces of runic poetry and reliquies of ancient English poetry, Mm -hmm. which was one of the first major collections of ballads. Right. Relics of ancient English poetry collects these English folk ballads. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. They're all in – What's called ballad meter, which is it's sometimes written eight six eight six because you have eight syllables followed by six. Uh huh. De dum de dum de dum de dum. De dum de dum de dum. De dum de dum de dum de dum. De dum de dum de dum. So the king sits in Dunfermline town drinking the blood red wine. Oh, where will I get good sailor to sail the ship of mine? Oh, up and spock an elder nicht. Sat at the king's richt knee. Sir Patrick Spence is I the best that sails upon the sea. Or the reason you can go, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. <laughs> there is a house in New Orleans they call the rising sun. It's been the ruin of many a boy, and God, I know I'm one. And God, I know I'm one. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held just but ourselves and immortality, and immortality. I want to be the very best like no one ever was. To train them is my real test. To train them is my cause. To train them is my cause. 
I'm running down the road trying to loosen my load. I got seven women on my mind. I guess that works. <laughs> it does. Or the one to own me, to the one to stone me. One says she's a friend of mine. One says she's a friend of mine. Because you can think amazing. I was trying mm-hmm. to think. Because, you know, I was raised evangelical and we did weird stuff like sing Amazing Grace to the tune of Take It Easy by the Eagles. Okay. So, yeah, it works. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, or. Yeah, well, a lot of, a lot of early hymns were written in ballad meter. So you can sing, you know, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, or it works with Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And since Neil Peart just died, you can you can do this with rush songs as well. There's unrest in the forest, there is trouble with the trees, for the maples want more sunlight and the oaks ignore their pleas. The oaks ignore their pleas. Oh god. So were the first Church of Odin ballad songs written in ballad format? Oh, some of them were. <laughs> we were singing them to the doxology. Right. That's a, a different meter. meter but but I, some of them are. I think if I'd spent more time looking, we could have sung some of A. Rudd Mills's Odinic hymns to Gilligan's Island. The tune of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> that's why all this is very interchangeable. Right. And, uh, yeah, you can, that's why you can sing Amazing Grace, Pokemon, Take It Easy, mm-hmm. House of the Rising Sun. Yeah. Right, they're all in this ballad meter that um, is in the traditional English ballads that Percy collected in uh, 1765. So now that we're done with singing the ballads, <laughs> we have to finish by singing, since you brought up A-Rod Mills, yeah. we have to sing, Wotan. There. You know, there's actually, I've had people sing that at me. Oh, yeah? Going to even events. But Percy also was... I think the first in English to publish translations of Old Norse poetry in this book of his five pieces of runic poetry. And I happen to have uh, some of it here. It's on a computer screen, so I can't hold this up so you can uh, see it, I'm afraid. But one of the poems he wrote is um, – or one of the poems he translated is the first translation of Ragnar Lothbrok's death song, Ragnar's Draupa where Ragnar is in this pit full of snakes and snakes are eating his liver. And of course he has the presence of mind to improvise a very complicated poem with like 30 verses or something like that while a snake is eating his liver. Like you do. Like you do. And it was kind of an interesting mistranslation. This is a piece of it. We fought with swords. This fills me still with joy because I know a banquet is preparing by the father of the gods. Soon in the splendid hall of Odin, we shall drink beer out of the skulls of our enemies. A brave man shrinks not at death. I shall utter no repining words as I approach the palace of the gods. Now in the original, he says we'll drink from bent trees of the skull, bugvithi hausa. What the poet meant was cattle horns because they're bent and they're hard like trees and they look like bent trees and they're growing out of the skull. But he made a slight mistake because tree is often used as canning for warriors. So he thought a bent tree was a fallen warrior and translated the bit about drinking from bent trees of the skull as drinking out of the skulls of our enemies. So the idea that the Vikings did that is actually a slight mistranslation. Still a 
decent idea some days, but mm-hmm. yeah, I've, oh, I've been tempted. Yeah, I've got a little list. <laughs> yes, got a little, little list. list. So. You have that, and then you also have Amos Cottles published the first translation of the Poetic Edda in 1797. He collaborated with uh, Robert Southey, who was a poet, and it was awful. Yeah, and I don't believe it's complete. He may have been working from a Latin translation of the Norse instead of from the Norse itself. But yeah, it's not considered particularly good. It's both bad and inaccurate. That's, right. that's the best part. Like, I can take slightly inaccurate if the poetry is, like, maintained or if they try to keep the alliterative nature. But this was just horrible to read and horribly inaccurate. Mm-hmm. But there were better poets working with this. And uh, Thomas Gray is probably most famous for a uh, poem that he writes about uh, sneezing a lot in a graveyard. Yes. Surely you've heard of allergy in a country churchyard. Wow, wow. Okay, sorry, folks. That's elegy in a country churchyard. But Gray also does one of his pieces is a reworking of the Daradarlyov, the lay of the spears that's quoted in Njal's saga. This is the bit where at the time of the Battle of Klontarf, somebody sees Valkyries flying in and they set up a loom and start weaving, Uh, but they're weaving the web of battle and the threads are human intestines weighted with human heads, and they're weaving a pattern of spears using uh, swords and spears as the weaving implements. It's um, pretty... uh, It's It's gory. Pretty damn grim. Yeah. It reminds you the Valkyries are not... Pleasingly plump sopranos running around in brass bras. You know, Valkyries are scary. Yes. And these are. And Thomas Gray turns it into, Now the storm begins to lower. Haste the loom of hell prepare. Iron sleet of houry shower hurtles in the darkened air. Glittering lances are the loom where the dusky warp we strain. Weaving many a soldier's doom, Orkney's woe and Ronver's bane. See the grisly texture grow, tis of human entrails made, and the weights that play below, each a gasping warrior's head. Shafts for shuttles dipped in gore shoot the trembling cords along. Sword that once a monarch bore, keep the tissue close and strong. There's a little sample. I won't read the whole thing. Maybe we can post a link on, on Facebook. So... You also then have Sir Walter Scott, who wrote historical novels, mostly. Yeah, he's big. He wrote very popular historical novels, uh, Ivanhoe, set in medieval Scotland, Kenilworth, a whole bunch of others. He was staggeringly popular and still is in some quarters as a novelist. And he wrote this uh, novel set on Shetland, these islands off the north coast of Scotland that were actually owned by Norway until 1460-something or other. Uh, It's called The Pirate, and it's set in around 1700, but the islanders are depicting as still clinging on to their pagan Norse heritage. And there's one in particular, the wise woman of the islands with the wonderful name of Norna of the Fitful Head. Yeah. You ever have a fitful head? Oh. I work in tech support. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. It's just a constant state of being. That'll do it. And Norna says things like, 
I learn to visit each lonely barrow, each lofty cairn, to tell its appropriate tale, and to soothe with rhymes in his praise the spirit of the stern warrior who dwelt within. I knew where the sacrifices were made of yore to Thor and to Odin, on what stones the blood of the victims flowed, where stood the dark-browed priest, where the crested chiefs who consulted the will of the idol, where the most distant crowd of inferior worshippers who looked on in awe or in terror. So, yeah, Norna of the Fitful Head very much preserves and still remembers and still uses the ancient uh, pagan lore and magic. And this yes. makes this sort of thing very popular in Britain because Scott, Scott is a best-selling novelist. Yes, and his works are still popular today. I've read mm -hmm. many of them, but I'm a sucker for a good historical novel. Mm -hmm. So all of this work together, all of a sudden we have this explosion of Northern scholars. Right. Beginning in about the 1840s, there's this network of British people who are just blown away by Old Norse literature and the Vikings and all of that. And in, in part, it's an exploration of English culture because the Vikings, of course, had invaded England. They invaded with their great heathen army and conquered parts of it for a while. Yes. Now, we had, you know, Norse kings on the on uh, the English throne for a time. Well, we have the whole Jorvik settlement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, York. It wasn't founded by the Vikings, but they made it a they made it a Norse town. They don't have to found it. it mm -hmm. it's, it's king of the mountain. It's who was whoever pushed it over last. Right. It it had been a Celtic speaking settlement, but yeah, there's a large number of uh, Norse artifacts that have come out of York or Jorvik, as they called it. So who do we have? 1844, a guy named Samuel Lang publishes only the second Norse saga ever translated into English, and it's Heimskringla, which is very big. And yeah. there's actually a whole bunch of sagas. Uh, his translation is easily available online in the public domain. Uh, in fact, it is available on archive.org. Mm-hmm. Because I was looking some stuff up about it the other day, mm -hmm. so yeah. And it's not that bad. It's uh, it's pretty well done. He was very much a competent scholar. Uh, he did take the Norse poetry and turn it into rhyming couplets that sound good in English but don't really give you a feel for the, the poetry. But as far as just a plain old translation goes, it's, uh, it still works pretty well. A fellow by the name of George Dassent translated the prose Edda dedicated to a scholar named Thomas Carlyle. Carlyle wrote in 1841, and this is going to sound familiar, the essence of the Scandinavian, as indeed of all pagan mythologies, we found to be recognition of the divineness of nature, sincere communion of man with the mysterious invisible powers visibly seen at work in the world round him. This, I should say, is more sincerely done in the Scandinavian than in any mythology I know. Sincerity is the great characteristic of it. The idea, and this is very romantic of him, that you know the old Viking-era Norse were more in touch with nature and more open and honest about their connection to nature. Yeah. You know, when they weren't, you know, 
uh-huh. going out and setting people on fire. They were, yeah, you know, more connected with uh, with the truth, more sincere. He says, "I believe that these old Northmen were looking into nature with open eye and soul, most earnest, honest, childlike, and yet manlike, a right, valiant, true old race of men." So that inspires Dasent to translate the Prose Edda. Uh, that's the first translation of that. He does several sagas. He also translates a collection of Scandinavian folk tales. And his translation of Njal's saga is so popular that it becomes kind of a thing for English tourists to go visit Iceland. Yeah. Which was not very easy to get around at the time. Uh, they hadn't built the ring road and Reykjavik didn't have so many trendy bars back in the day. No. Nor were there copious amounts of B&Bs. Right. But you could go to the the very farm where uh, Gunnar of Hlíðarend, kind of the doomed hero of Njál's saga, could see the very spot where he'd been standing when he was about to leave Iceland because he'd been outlawed. But he turned around and he saw the hills and said, fair is the hillside. You know, the landscape is so beautiful that I don't want to leave. And... That, of course, got him killed, but um, yeah, it's one of the yeah. famous passages in the sagas, and you could go see that now. Yes. And adventurous travelers did and went to visit Iceland and soak up that Icelandic saga Viking-y goodness. But they also enjoyed some of their lovely hot springs. I'm sure they did, and their lovely fermented shark, I'm sure. And the Northern Lights. And the Northern Lights. I mean – this is also the time when Iceland is losing something like a quarter of its population to emigration because Denmark basically doesn't care. They've strangled the local economy with their trade practices. There's volcanoes erupting. It's too cold to farm. There's periodic epidemics. Like 1800 was about the worst possible time to be an Icelander and – about 20,000-odd people ended up emigrating at this time. So Iceland was not doing very well, but at least they could offer hospitality and you know hope for some cash uh, from these English tourists coming to see Njál's saga. So Dasent, this is actually a quote by a friend of his who wrote a, a preface to his book of Scandinavian folktales. Uh, he said, Though a sincerely religious man... Still, I cannot help suspecting that in his heart of hearts, he looked upon Christianity as a somewhat parvenu creed, newcomer, and deemed that Thor, Odin, Freya, etc. were the proper objects of worship. So he's not really a heathen, but he's certainly captivated by the power of the old mythology. He definitely is heathen. He would have been open to it had he lived in a different time. Yeah, probably so. There's a guy named George Stevens in Copenhagen who in 1866-67 publishes Old Northern Runic Monuments of Scandinavia and England. It's a compilation of drawings and transcriptions and translations of every rune inscription he can find. Many of them not very accurate, but at least he gathers all of this stuff together in one place, and he certainly paved the way for later scholars. You also have interest coming up in the Anglo-Saxons. A guy named John Kemble publishes the first complete modern English translation of Beowulf in 1837. There's a number of people that start developing archaeology as a more scientific pursuit uh, rather than opposed to another name for looting. 
Uh, So you get some excavations of Saxon burial grounds in the south of England that are actually... Not for people, for rich people to go collect? Well, it's still rich people going and collecting this stuff, but at least they're trying to describe and understand the artifacts rather than melting them down for their gold, Yeah, uh, which is what happened to a lot of them back in the day. A guy named Benjamin Thorpe published both Old Norse and Old English writings. Uh, He translated the Poetic Edda in 1866, and his translation is still considered pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, the Thorpe Edda is still out there. It is. That's another one that's also pretty freely available online. Mm Mm-hmm. And then some of these English folks collaborated with Icelanders who settled in England. One was a guy named Guðbrandur Vigfusson. Guðbrandur did some saga translations, finished an enormous dictionary that had been begun by an English clergyman named Richard Cleesby, and he died before he could finish it. But Cleesby and Vigfusson's Icelandic English Dictionary was finally finished in 1874, and it's still just a grand old warhorse of yeah. of scholarship. I mean, I use it all the time. They're working on a more updated English Norse dictionary, but they're still not finished with it. So for now, this one will still have to do. Guthbrand also collaborated on the first complete collection of skaldic poetry. Which was a little sketchy on the translation. The translations of it are pretty awful, kind of notoriously inaccurate, and we've got better better editions of it now. But yes. still, somebody has to start somewhere. And then finally, a guy named uh, Eric Magnuson collaborated with William Morris. Morris was a heck of a guy. He was a novelist and poet and translator and artist and printer of fine art books and designer and interior decorator and labor activist. So think if you could get Karl Marx to do your window treatments – that was that was uh, William Morris, very vigorous and active intellect in a lot of different fields. Beautiful stained glass. Yes, famous for his uh, stained glass windows. In fact, one of his most famous is Stanmore Hall, where there was a six or eight, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, it was a whole narrative of the search for the Holy Grail. Right. Which I have seen. I have seen pictures of because i've never been there but you've seen the holy grail no the the stained glass are you sure that wasn't a beacon that was just grail shaped mm. okay i just mind. saw the monty python glass. again yeah. all right yeah he married uh one of the most beautiful women in england at the time a woman named janie burden who was a model for a number of paintings at the time if you know British art from a school that's called the Pre-Raphaelites. A lot of them have this very beautiful but slightly stern woman with a really high forehead and long nose. That's her. That's Janie Burden, uh, who ended up having an affair with one of the artists that painted her, a guy named Dante Gabriel Rossetti. So that's worth checking out. And Morris kind of – I think he was so busy, I'm not sure he entirely noticed. But yeah, there's this whole sort of medieval revival Morris felt like you ought to recapture that feel of craftsmanship in place of all of the mass-produced stuff that is coming out of the factories. Yeah. And so his designs are tried of, you know, furniture and 
fabrics and things like that are trying to give you that feel of, you know, handcrafted work and carefully designed and going back to some very old medieval models. And he does the same thing in his writing. He collaborated with Eric Magnuson in translating Volsunga Saga, and then he retold it as a prose novel called The House of the Wolfings, and then he retold it as an epic poem, the story of Sigurd the Volsung. And Morris was going back to medieval style in his interior designs and in his art and uh, applied art. Uh, he's also going back to medieval style in his writing, and a lot of his style uses these very old words, uh, some of which are not technically English words. They're Norse words that have been changed to make it look like they're English. And you know how people call Lee Hollander's translation of the Poetic Edda, uh, the King James Edda? Oh, yes, it is. Right. Morris makes Lee Hollander's Edda look like freaking Ernest Hemingway. Really? Well, here's a little bit of his translation, his and Magnuson's translation of the Volsunga saga. Sigurd has just wakened up Brunhild on Valkyrie Rock, right, where she's been imprisoned by Odin because she gave victory to the wrong king in battle. All right, remember this yeah. bit? And um, Sigurd wakes her up. And she says, "Hail to ye day, hail ye day's sons." That famous oh, prayer. Oh, I need to read the. I need to read this version. Okay, go ahead. Because this just makes my heart hurt. Oh, hail, O oh day of thy and thy sons and thy kin of colored things. Hail, following night and thy daughter that leadeth thy wavering wings. Look down with unangry eyes on us today, alive. And give us hearts victorious and the gain for which we strive. And all hail, ye lords of God home and ye queens of the house of gold. Hail, thou dearest earth that bearest and thou's wealth of field and fold. Give us your noble children, the glory and wisdom of speech and the hearts and the hands of healing, and the mouths and hands that teach. Oh, God, I feel like I just went to church. Right. <laughs> That's, I mean, in the original is hail day, hail day's sons, hail night and daughter of night. And he has to stretch that out to all hail, O day and thy sons, and the kin of the colored things, da, 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 da. Yeah. And he, he retells the entire saga in that story, in that style of, of, of couplets. And the prose translation, she says that, and then Sigurd asks, you know, he's never seen a woman before, and he's just suddenly cut the armor off of the sleeping woman, and the first thing he wants is for her to teach him wisdom, which strikes me as slightly unrealistic as to what a teenager who found a sleeping woman would normally be interested in, but that's just me. Yeah. By the way, in the last podcast, we were talking about Wagner, and um, instead of teaching him wisdom, they actually fall in immediate passionate love. Like you do. And, and then take about 45 minutes to sing about it, and, you know, this ending with them singing, da, 
Anyway, so that's what Wagner does, and Morris has Brunhild say when Sigurd has asked for her wisdom. She said, Belike thou canest more skill in all than I, yet will I teach thee. Yea, and with thanks, if there be aught of my cunning that will in any wise pleasure thee, either of runes or of other matters that are the root of things. But now let us drink together, and may the gods give to us twain a good day, that thou mayest win good help and fame from my wisdom, and that thou mayest hereafter mind thee of that which we twain speak together. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's doing this for deliberate artistic effect. This is the kind of thing he goes for. And far be it for me to criticize aesthetic choices, except to say that you need a machete to get through this kind of prose. I think most readers today tend to like things a little bit simpler. That would be what I would call high church heathenry. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, he makes Hollander look a lot easier. So I guess the question is, we look at all this stuff, why? Why was this important? Why was this inspiring? Well, the Vikings have this great mythology. They have these terrific stories. And they're good models for 19th century Britons because they're enterprising traders. You know, they're capitalists. They rule the waves, like Britannia rules the waves. They're setting out in their ships. Um, you know, the hammers of the gods are driving their ships to new lands to fight the horde, singing and crying. Valhalla, I am coming. <laughs> okay, anyway. But yeah, so mm -hmm. they're considered to be these role models, and you do have this kind of 19th century ethos of where when you tie back into what we talked about, so to kind of rewind to the last episode, one of the kind of virtues of romanticism was definitely individualism, an individual focus, focus on your own personal spiritual growth, your own emotions. So basically you have these... You have the Vikings, and they're being grafted onto these romantic virtues. Mm -hmm. Right. So the Vikings are these rugged individualists that won't let anybody tell them what to do. That's the picture of the Vikings that would go on to inspire Steve McNallan. He's always been about the Vikings as being you know, free individuals rebelling against conformity. Which, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've talked about that in an earlier episode of this podcast. That would be the history of the AFA and Steve McNallan. Indeed. So, yeah, so you have Thomas Carlyle. I think I actually read this quote earlier, but this is the one where he talks about these Northmen were looking into nature with open eye and soul, you know, facing the world head on boldly and bravely and courageously and then setting it on fire and killing it and taking its gold. But, you know, we can brush over that part. Hey, Ben, why did uh, Vikings pillage churches? I don't know. Why did Vikings pillage churches? That's where the gold was. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. By the way, that was one of the first jokes Ben ever told me when mm -hmm. we met like almost 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and mm -hmm. now we feel old. 
Right. Yeah, that's why they go pillage to village. They're enterprising traders and capitalists. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, betcha. So Thomas Carlyle gives these lectures on heroes, hero worship, and the heroic in history. And these were popular f- till World War Two. But talking about how the essence of Scandinavian, as indeed all pagan mythologies, we found to be recognition in the divineness of nature, sincere communion of man with the mysterious and visible powers seen at work in the world around him. Right. They're in touch with nature, and at the same time, they're enterprising and practical. And this, you know, this, once again, this... Shall we submit? Are we but slaves? Love comes alike too high and low. Britannia's sailors rule the waves, and shall they stoop to insult? No, no. So, uh, sorry s- about that. So, that and then I, I get Gilbert and Sullivan coming up on me. At yeah, really. Darndest times. So, sincerity is the great characteristic of this mythology he puts right. forward. Superior sincerity, far superior. Mm-hmm consoles us for the total want of old Grecian grace. Sincerity, I think, is better than grace. I believe these old Northmen were looking into nature with open eye and soul, most earnest, child, honest, childlike, and yet manlike, with great-hearted simplicity and depth and freshness, in a true, loving, admiring, unfearing way, a right, valiant, true old race of men. Oh, well, gag me with a spoon. It's it's kind of like the stories we in America tell about our founding fathers and our forebears who, you know, crossed the great prairies on a on yeah. a on a covered wagon with, you know, nothing but a shovel and a plow and one old ox to tame the land and and you died of dysentery. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> By the way, that's a joke for people who are over the age of 30 who right. played the Oregon Trail. Right, right. I did not. I'm, I'm a it's little – It's an app now. It's it is? A, it's been released as an app, so I've I've been tempted to try it just to see, like, if it still holds up. Okay. Yeah, I'm a little more old school than that. We never played the Oregon Trail. I took a computer science class my senior year, and for 24 students, we had three computers, and they were TRS-80 Model 3s. Oh, man, we had a whole lab of computers. I don't remember. They were IBMs. I remember they were donated by Sam Walton because I grew up in Arkansas. And uh, he donated computer labs to almost every rural school in Arkansas. And we got them when I was in fifth grade. And so one hour a week, we got to go to the computer lab and uh, I would play Oregon Trail. But yeah, there was this idea, and it definitely does remind me of how we romanticize the pioneers, the Western settlers, especially the founding fathers to a degree. But I almost feel like this is much more in tune with, and maybe it's because this is about a contemporary time where you have this romanticism Mm -hmm. and this Western movement in the United States happening. Right. Well, and it kind of resonates with us today because, you know, we are a very industrial technological society and yet a lot of people feel like we've missed – we're missing out on, you know, the traditional virtues of people with soil on their hands. I can't think of a specific song, but I'm hearing country music in my head right now. There's got to be some songs about how old grandpa was – Grandpa, tell me about the good old days – 
the right. Judds. Oh, okay. Uh, that song's like 30 years old. Okay. If it, no, probably 40. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, sorry. I grew up listening to country music. I was a country music DJ for four years. All right. I do know my country music. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, hey, I've, you know what happens when you play country music backwards? What? The guy sobers up, he gets out of jail, his wife moves back in, the dog comes home, and he gets his truck out of the impoundment lot. Nice. Mm -hmm. And the tornado doesn't come. Exactly. Yeah, the tornado misses the trailer park. (laughs) So you have another adventure novelist who's Robert L. Ballantyne, in about a contemporary time in 1869, concludes his novel, Erling the Bold. Yeah, he's kind of an early... YA novelist because he writes these cracking boys adventure stories, a lot of them taking place where, you know, some young British boy has to face the dreaded cannibals of the South Pacific or something like that. But he writes one about the Vikings called Erling the Bold, and he ends with it. Yes, there is perhaps more of Norse blood in your veins than you wot of, means you know of, reader, whether you be English or Scotch. For these sturdy sea rovers invaded our land from north, south, east, and west many a time in days gone by and held it in possession for centuries at a time, leaving a lasting and beneficial impress on our customs and characters. We have good reason to regard their memory with respect and gratitude despite their faults and sins. For much of what is good and true in our laws and social customs much of what is manly and vigorous in the British Constitution, and much of our intense love of freedom and fair play is due to the pith, pluck, enterprise, and sense of justice that dwell in the breasts of the rugged old sea kings of Norway. Leaving out the fact that their pith, pluck, enterprise, and sense of justice made them you know, burn the place down and take all the gold and sell the inhabitants as slaves. Yeah, you have this very romantic view of the Vikings as kind of ideal colonizers and traders. And yeah, they might slaughter people, but they've got a sense of fair play about the whole thing. They'll give the monks a um, five-second head start before they break out the bows and arrows. Now, we're we're talking about this here, and I kind of want to do a little, if you don't mind, take a little five-minute comparative. Okay. So these two perceptions and portrayals in the Romantic era, or and I will say this also to some degree parallels in and can also be lumped into Victorian era, because you hear a lot about Victorian era scholarship. Right. In fact, I posted on my Twitter the other day, your heathenry is probably influenced by bad Victorian scholarship. Mm. It's okay, so is mine. We right. do better. Well, we've we've talked about Dassent and people yeah. like that who created this image, and they they weren't necessarily bad for the time, but we've moved on a little bit. I guess I want to do a comparative. Mm-hmm. What do we know now as being true versus mm-hmm. what was portrayed? So, because I, I think that's a conversation that doesn't happen enough, right? So we have this portrayal here that. The Scandinavians, because specifically they were looking at North Scandinavian in the British time period or British location. The idea of divineness of nature, the idea mm-hmm. of this individualism and these looking at nature with open eye and soul. Mm-hmm. What What's what's the reality? Well, I mean, people have always talked about 
being natural as being good. I mean, you hear from the folkish heathens a lot about how, you know, Asatru is our natural path. You know, the Christianity that we've held for 2,000 years was never natural and never a natural fit, and we need to do what's natural. So there's this idea that this comes out a lot in some of Steve McNallan's writings. I used to have a copy of a CD that he put out back before the age of the audiobook called Visions. And he keeps talking about how today, you know, there's cold beer in the fridge and pizza to be had in 30 minutes or less. And yet something's wrong because we're separated from what's natural for us. And you've got to be natural, 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 natural. It's a big deal. So our local strip club is called Visions, and so the idea that he did a, a CD called Visions just tickles me to no end, because mm-hmm. <laughs> then I have this mental image of Stephen McNallan on a stripper pole, uh, and I just yeah. need to share that with everyone. Yeah, Visions happens to be the name of the yeah the strip, strip joint club. on <laughs> I on I forty in uh, what Morganton. Mayflower, I thought. Something like that. Yeah. One of those towns that starts with M. In the greater suburbs of the Little Rock. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, there's this, I think that you also have this idea that, I don't know, to me, this idea of being so connected with nature and intertwined with nature, I don't find it authentic mm-hmm. from what I know. Granted, I am not the Ossipope. Okay. I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. I have only been at this for about 16 years. But this idea of heathens were so much more in connection with the earth Mm -hmm. just sounds like Wicca to me. Well, I mean, there's a sense that they are in that you have to know, you know, if you don't know when to plow and when to plant and when to harvest, you're going to starve to death. You know, it's very much a practical matter of being... You know, knowing what the earth is doing at any given time, that often gets a very, you know, airy fairy kind of spin put on it about being in tune with the cycles of nature. Well, yes, you have to be in tune with the cycles of nature because if you don't, you're going to die. Yeah. Well, I mean, my grandmother, my great grandmother were in tune with the cycles of nature. I'm in tune with the cycles of nature. I plant a garden every year. Like right now, I'm sitting here going, Oh, my God, my trees, because it's almost 70 degrees today and mm-hmm. the 1st of February. And all I can think is, you know, when's our frost going to be? You know, I was always taught that you plant a garden when you see people fishing on the side of the road, sitting on the ground and not their buckets. Oh, you heard that, too. Yeah, it's time mm-hmm. to plant. Yep. And that's I, I guess to me, it was this very much to, to use the phrase, but romanticizing mm-hmm. of the dead. Yeah. And I think that. This idea that all Viking, you know, first of all, Viking was a profession. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not an ethnic signifier. And the fact that, you know, I don't know, like I said, it it bothers me to some degree that we have this idea that I feel like, especially especially when we're looking at Carlisle, Mm -hmm. that Carlisle almost wants to take away the sophistication of the culture. Right. It's very patronizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Vikings yeah. were, you know, for their time, one of the more technologically advanced people out there. Sunstones. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's my one of my favorite pieces of Viking technology. But yeah, it's and I think a lot of the, as I call it, brosatru aesthetic. Right. 
does come from this time period and from this romanticizing and this idea that I think there's a, I don't know. I have a lot of, I have a lot of feelings about this, Mm -hmm. but a lot of this Victorian portrayal was not accurate. And it's led to, I think, a lot of the issues that we see now, the kind of hyper masculinity, Mm -hmm. the brosa true, as they call it, the uh, idea that, you know, the, diminishing of women's place because i mean heck the viking brotherhood was a brotherhood it was not a viking siblinghood Mm -hmm. so i hope that by hearing these last two episodes on the romantic period and understanding that a lot of our scholarship begins here this is also the era of what people had available Mm -hmm. to them right i remember i mean when i went to my local library and i got a copy of the eddas the very first copy of the eddas i ever got my hands on was one of these Victorian romantic mm-hmm. era edits. Right. Well, of course, since they're out of copyright, you know, anybody can put them between two covers and slap them up on Amazon. And in <laughs> fact, if you do a search, you'll find that everybody has. Well, I mean, these were pretty much sitting in, had been sitting in the Woodruff County library since probably it opened in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's, it's a situation where we have, this is what was available to people then. Mm-hmm. It's why, on one hand, it annoys me, and on the other hand, it's understandable why early heathenry was the way it was. Right. You know, it reflects what were very much real social concerns in the 1800s. To some extent, it still does in that, you know, American Ossetru grew up in the 1970s. American Ossetru is a boomer religion, and it comes from a time when, on the one hand— you know, America has this great technology and we've put people on the moon and we're fighting massive wars to contain the communists and all that. And there's this whole counterculture of people asking, is this really what we ought to be doing? You know, is there nothing better than living in a tract house in Levingtown and having 2.5 children and a white picket fence? Hey, Ben. Yes? What did the uh, Ossetru say to the Wiccan? I give up. What did the Ossetru say to the Wiccan? Okay, Broomer. Ooh. <laughs> All right. All right. Very good. I, Very stole, good. I stole that from Facebook. Right. I admit it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can you can see this. I've, I've been reading a lot of Steve McNallan's early work, and you can see the ways he uses this kind of romantic impulse to get close to nature, but he uses it in a different way from the way that the hippies did in that the nature that he has in mind is the nature of man. Right. Is the nature of, well, of man of European descent. Well, and I think we're also seeing that now when mm-hmm. you look at, excuse Lauren for a minute while she's going to go off on a little bit here. So there's some pretty strong evidence right now mm-hmm. that there is a group of terrorists, mm-hmm. white separatist terrorists right. that are leveraging heathenry mm. called the order. And they're leveraging this very romantic era idea of, the natural order of things and Mm -hmm. men and manliness and Vikings and the gods being on our side. And there are gods Mm -hmm. as a means to promote their terrorism. Right. And it's looking more and more likely that this is all being fueled and funded by Russia, that Russia is weaponizing the scholarship and this heathenry in America. Uh, Um, Do you know Russian? No. Good. But it's definitely, 
it, it is. It's very easy, I think, for any religious group to turn around and weaponize mm-hmm. religion. Right. But yeah, I mean, you see the concerns, the the modern concerns that are brought forth. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it doesn't even have to be religion. Think of the ways that the phrase traditional American family values has been weaponized ever since Reagan. Ugh. You know, I'm not opposed to traditional family values as long as they're not using them as a stick to beat me over the head with. Is it even a traditional mm-hmm. marriage if you're not shoring up an alliance between two families? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what they're talking about is not all that traditional and not that old and was, you know, maybe never as widespread as they think it is, but they're using this romanticized version of the past as a way to drive political action in the present. And that's been going on, like I said, I'm I'm old enough to remember Reagan's uh, regime and they were real big on that stuff. Or if you want to go real traditional American marriage, is mm-hmm. it even traditional American marriage if you're not advertising in a newspaper for a wife? Yeah, good point. <laughs> and you have to publish the announcements of marriage. Well, no, I meant like the back right. in the uh, pioneer settlement yeah. era where people would send back advertisements to Eastern newspapers to try to find a wife that would move out. Right, with them. right. Oh, you could go farther back. Is it really a marriage if you don't sleep with your wife before marriage, but you've got a board between you so that no funny business can happen? I mean, they're, they're called bundling boards. They yes. used to do that. Yeah, I, they still do that in, in some old order Amish communities. Ah, I'll have to ask Rob Shriver about that. You have to really look at what is the motivation. Mm-hmm. Why are people using this? And also, I encourage everyone who's listening, whether you are an inclusive heathen or not, just examine your sources, examine what was their motivation in writing this down. What was, you know, I mean, even you, Ben, you have a motivation for your books. Right. That motivation might be I must have all the sources and exhaust the inner library loan lady, but it's I've, still a motivation. Yeah, I've I've worn out three interlibrary loan librarians uh, in the past 10 years or so. And we have a motivation for this podcast, mm-hmm. and that is to tell the unvarnished truth to the best of our ability about heathenry. Darn right. So, speaking of unvarnished truth about heathenry, mm-hmm. we have a lot more coming up because Ooh, we we're going to be talking about some re- some really interesting topics like where did the hammer right come from? Mm-hmm. Where did the nine noble virtues come from? And most importantly, mm-hmm. why... The idea of race in heathenry is pretty meaningless. Mm -hmm. So you want to stay tuned. You want to support us. You know, we got a lot coming up and we're really excited about it. Mm -hmm. So if you want to support us, you can visit our Patreon, sneak peeks, special gifts. And we even have a Heathen History Facebook group for our patrons. And that means you get to come in and ask Ben questions. And then his wife and I get to hunt him down and make him answer it. Mm Mm-hmm. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash heathen history for that. All right. You can also follow us on Twitter at heathen history or Facebook at facebook.com slash heathen history. And you can ask us questions and uh, Lauren and my wife will uh, hunt me down (laughs) and uh, I've still got the bruises from the last time. And as always, our show notes and our sources are available on our website, heathenhistory.com. That's right. And we have great theme music. It is by Roller Music. It's called Happy Viking. So for the Heathen History Podcast, my name is Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. y'all.